Hi, and welcome to the first episode of the IFS podcast. I'm your host, Adrian Nieha, and today we have with us Professor Robert George from Princeton University. Professor Robert George is currently the McCormick Professor of Jurisprudence and the Director of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions at Princeton University. He's the author of several books, including In Defense of Natural Law, and the co-author of equally numerous books, including Conjugal Union, What Marriage Is, and the book that gives the title for today's episode, What is Marriage? In this episode, Professor Robert George will be discussing traditional and modern views of marriage, their foundations, and their importance for society. It's great to meet you, Professor George. Well, albeit virtually. Thank you, Adrian. I'm glad to be on. In your book with Sharif Gurgis and Ryan Anderson, What is Marriage?, you talk about the conjugal understanding of marriage and contrast it with what you call the revisionist understanding of marriage. I'd like to ask if you could explain that a little bit for us as we begin this episode. Well, certainly, Adrian, I'll be happy to do that. Uh, I do contrast in the book, together with my co-authors, Sharif Gerges and Ronnie Anderson, two visions of marriage which compete uh, today uh, for people's allegiance uh, for people's uh, commitment. Uh, the one we call the revisionist understanding of marriage, uh, one that has emerged in the uh, 20th century and is now very strong in the 21st century, uh, is an understanding of marriage as essentially sexual romantic companionship or domestic partnership. So two or perhaps more, three, five people uh, enter yeah. into a contract, what is essentially a contract, uh, to have a partner, uh, to have a household uh, together. Uh, the ordinary understanding is that there will be a sexual relationship among the, uh, among the partners. Uh, and then that uh, is understood to last for as long as the parties wish the contract uh, to remain in place. Uh, this was not the traditional understanding of marriage in most cultures. Uh, in most cultures, uh, we had, and certainly this, is, this would include uh, Jewish and Christian cultures and uh, even Islamic cultures, although Islam uh, retained uh, the permission of polygamy. In most cultures, uh, marriage is understood as a conjugal partnership. Uh, that is a bond not merely at the emotional level, which the revisionist understanding has, where the marriage partners uh, connect uh, in, in, uh, at the level of feeling, emotion, and affective bond, uh, but at the, all the levels at which human beings lead their lives, all the levels of human being, the biological, we are, we're biological creatures, organisms, uh, the rational uh, and dispositional, uh, the affective, the emotive, the emotional, uh, to be sure, um, the spiritual. Uh, the idea here is that there is a comprehensive sharing of life. And the fact that uh, this sharing of life on the conjugal understanding of marriage is uh, founded on their biological unity is what accounts for 
an understanding of marriage as inherently and not simply incidentally or accidentally a sexual partnership according to the conjugal understanding of marriage. This explains, for example, the otherwise inexplicable historical fact that whether in religious law or secular law for a marriage to be complete, it had to be consummated. And it was consummated by acts that fulfilled the behavioral conditions of procreation, quite irrespective of whether the non-behavioral conditions happened to obtain. It would seem then that in the conjugal understanding of marriage, the body has a great importance. Could you shed a little bit of light on that, please? It's because we are biological uh, creatures and our biology, our bodies, are not incidental to who they, who we are. They're intrinsic to who we are. Our bodies are not uh, subpersonal instruments yeah. of the human being considered as the psyche or the mind or the spirit. Uh, our bodies are part of the personal reality of the human being. Our bodies are as much us as our minds uh, or our spirits are, are us. Uh, so the traditional understanding of marriage characteristically holds uh, what is sometimes called, borrowing a term from the Aristotelian philosophical tradition, the hylomorphic view of the person. Persons are not ghosts in machines. They're not minds or spirits yeah. inhabiting bodies. Uh, the, way a, the way a driver might sit in a car and, and direct the car, but the car is a mere instrumentality. It's not part of the reality of the driver. Uh, no, on the uh, conjugal understanding of marriage, as, as typically uh, at least um, conceived, the sexual dimension of life, the biological dimension of uh, marriage, is important to what marriage uh, actually is. Because marriage, unlike other forms of friendship or other forms of relationship, which are... Um, which exist at the affective or emotional level, marriage exists at all levels. And it's founded on, its, its foundation and matrix is the biological unity made possible by the sexual complementarity of male and female, making it possible for them to be husband and wife. Of what importance is the marriage relationship for a society on the conjugal understanding of marriage, there is an account available uh, as to why society should be interested in this relationship, in this partnership, mm -hmm. uh, why society should not treat it, even a modern society should not treat it the way a modern society treats purely religious matters, such as baptisms in the Christian faith or bar mitzvahs in the uh, Jewish faith or equivalent sorts of um, um, sacraments or practices or ordinances or uh, rituals uh, in the other great faiths of the world. So uh, the idea is that marriage is the distinctive form of relationship that unites, brings together man and woman as husband and wife to be father and mother to any children born yeah. of their union conferring on those children the inestimable blessing of being brought up in the loving bond of the two people whose coming together brought them into 
existence and conferring on them the benefit of being brought up with both paternal and maternal influences and forms of care, uh, which I understand and which I think historically people have understood as being a great advantage, both for little boys and for uh, little girls, little, little, little girls should, she should see what a good man is, what a good husband is, the father is the first role model. Little boys should see what a good woman is, the mother is the first role model. And of course, the same is, is certainly true in the case uh, of, the, of the, yeah. the parents of the same sex of the child. A little girl looks to her mother uh, as for an understanding of what it means to be a woman. A little boy looks to the father uh, for that. Now, uh, nothing is perfect. Uh, people are imperfect. Relationships are imperfect. Bad things happen. Children are orphaned. Children lose a father. Children lose a, a mother. We have to do the best that we can with with those sorts of uh, realities of human life. And yet the ideal, the model, uh, is that the child is brought up in the loving bond of the two parents who's uh, coming together, brought the child into existence. Psychologically, I think this uh, is confirmed by the sense that uh, children have even adopted children and adopted into wonderful homes because some catastrophe has befallen uh, them and they cannot be brought up by their biological uh, parents. Those children long to know and be known, love and be loved yeah. by their biological parents. They search for them. This is very, very typical. If people did not understand themselves as biological realities or, or simply understood their biology as purely incidental, as purely instrumental, you, why, why would you care who your biological parents were? You would only care about the, the people who, who bring you up and, and they're, they're your, your, mom, your mom and dad and your adopted in your adopted home. And these children do love their moms and dads, their adopted uh, moms and dads, but they still have this longing to see where they came from and to know and be known by biological parents. And often they go to great lengths to uh, search them out. And sometimes it can be very emotionally fraught on both sides, the side of the child, of course. And also the parent, if the parent is uh, the biological parent or parents, if they are, uh, if they are living, because they tend to be ambivalent yeah. about whether they should get to know where they want to be found by their uh, biological children who have been adopted to other families uh, uh, or not. So far, we've seen that in the conjugal understanding of marriage, there are implied heterosexuality, a permanence of the relationship, and an exclusivity that limits the relationship to occur only between two partners. What about in the revisionist understanding of marriage? On the revisionist understanding of marriage as sexual, romantic companionship or domestic partnership, no account at all can be given, none, zero, mm -hmm. of all of the characteristics or qualities or attributes or norms of marriage that are not in dispute. Uh, here's what I mean by that. Uh, of course, on the on the revisionist understanding of marriage, it doesn't matter whether the two partners are of opposite sexes or the same sex, because marriage is just an emotional bond, and two people of the same sex can have as much of an emotional bond as two people of opposite sexes. They can desire to be in a sexual partnership. They can get satisfaction out of that, and and so forth. But not only does it eliminate the norm of sexual complementarity. There's no principled philosophical or, or 
uh, other ground. For example, the idea that marriage should be between two people and only two, as opposed to three or five or seven. Uh, just as uh, an understanding of marriage as an affective, purely emotional uh, bond, removes the need for the persons to be of opposite sexes. It removes the need for it to be two persons as opposed to three or five. Three people can be in a tight emotional bond. So can five. They can understand their polyamorous partnership to be enhanced by mutual uh, sexual relations. Uh, and, and of course, now you have the whole polyamorous yeah. uh, movement. Newsweek magazine says in the United States, there are more than a half a million, half a million polyamorous households, uh, uh, even, even now you find defenses of polyamory now in places like the New York Times and other respected uh, uh, journalistic uh, outlets. Similarly, the, on, the, on the question of whether marriage should yeah. be sexually open or closed, uh, on the conjugal understanding of marriage, you, it's, it's obvious why marriage must be a sexually closed relationship. There could be no such thing as an open marriage. That wouldn't really be a marriage. That's we, we, there's a ground for the vow that we forsake all others uh, as, 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 as much as you might be attracted to, an, to another person. Uh, uh, you, you forsake all others. Of course, that, there's no reason in the revisionist understanding for that to be the case. So the, the spouses, two or three or however many they are, could say, well, you know, we're, we're going to have our household together, but what people, we're going to consider each other free to form uh, uh, sexual partnerships with people outside the, uh, uh, the relationship. Yeah. Same for the question of um, whether, whether marriage should be pledged to permanence. So should it be a lifelong bond? The traditional formulation in the wedding vows yeah. uh, in Western traditions tends to be uh, we uh, commit to each other for better or worse, uh, for richer or poorer, in sickness or in health, till death do we part. Now that doesn't always, isn't always fulfilled. Things happen, bad things happen. Uh, people uh, 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 abandon their spouses. People uh, become violent toward their spouses. Their spouses have to leave to protect themselves, protect their yeah. children. Uh, there are divorces, bad things happen. But there's an intelligible basis for the pledge that we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna stick together. This is a lifelong uh, uh, commitment. You would not say we pledge to remain together for five years renewable. <laughs> but of course, on the revisionist understanding, there can be no basis for why that shouldn't be. And, and so Mexico City, for example, uh, has, uh, has had legislation introduced uh, that would authorize the legal recognition of contractual terms for marriage. And that makes perfect sense on the revisionist understanding. Of course, it makes no sense on the conjugal understanding. So if you examine these competing understandings, these competing visions, you, you'll see that a lot uh, follows logically from which set of fundamental principles you you adopt if you adopt the basic principles of the conjugal view uh you'll have one set of norms the the, the ones we traditionally identify with marriage if you adopt the revisionist understanding yeah. then you're going to have another set of norms. well you've touched on many interesting things there i'd like to touch on just one of them you mentioned that 
children, even those who have been adopted, have a need, a yearning to know and be known by, to love and be loved by their biological parents. Thinking about what you could almost call the endemic depression among young people in our times, it seems that it comes from not having received unconditional love. This has its roots in a lack of solid commitment between the parents or in the relationship between the parents and their children or other factors in that relationship. In a sense, this helps them understand who they are, their own worth, and by extension the worth of other persons, and that makes them capable of loving other people and entering into meaningful relationships of love. So in light of this, I'd like to ask, why should we desire the conjugal view? Is it perhaps less desirable now because commitment is less desirable? And that because we have a diminished idea of our own self-worth and the worth of other persons because of not having received unconditional love. In other words, do you think that the decline of solid family bonds could be something that is at the root of young people's incapacity or unwillingness to form solid bonds of commitment with others? That's a profound comment as well as a very good uh, question. Uh, you certainly have described at the beginning of your comment there uh, the situation in the West, and it's been much commented on uh, not only by uh, pundits, but also by scholars who've studied the rise in loneliness, uh, especially among young people. Uh, sometimes this is analyzed uh, trying to figure out what role social media is playing, because social media seems to be uniting young people, but also uh, distancing them from one another. They, they, yeah. they have many, many uh, friends, uh, in quotation marks, I would say yeah. friends. Uh, 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 virtual friends, we might say, uh, but but fewer real uh, uh, relationships. Uh, the loneliness problem is some, certainly something we see in the West. Uh, were, were you suggesting that even in Kenya and other places in Africa where you are, you you are experiencing the same thing? That that surprises me if that's true. Is, is that that phenomenon? Has it is it with you as well as with us? It's on the rise, especially in urban settings. Um, and especially among young people, although it's it's not it's not very very widespread, but it's it's certainly increasing, and mental health is becoming much more of a concern among young people, especially matters of depression and among young men, suicidal tendencies. Yes, we're seeing exactly the same thing uh, here. There's a rise in suicide uh, ideation, uh, uh, suicide uh, attempts. Uh, here's a, a striking and, and very alarming uh, figure, which is that uh, the rate of successful suicide attempts is going up in young women. There has always been a large gap between attempt and success bet between the sexes. Uh, males tend to be more, more often successful in their suicide attempts. Yeah. Uh, females less so, which has led uh, people to suppose that often, uh, especially in young women, uh, what we have is a is a cry for help, not not really a desire to do away with herself, but 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 a, but a cry for help. But the success rate among young women is going up. It's very concerning, very alarming. Now, the profound thing you said, I think, was that uh, 
it, there's a connection, I, and I think there is a strong connection uh, between a sense of security and loneliness. The kind of security that you get when you understand that you are unconditionally loved. Uh, we all need, and certainly societies need, um, need, need to be populated by people yeah. who are capable of loving unconditionally. We need that in parents. We need that in grandparents. We need that in friends. Uh, we need that. But nobody, I think, has that quality innately. I think we get it by being unconditionally loved first. It's the experience of being unconditionally loved. In the first instance, by our parents and our grandparents and our siblings, that we develop the capacity. It's not innate, it's a developed, learned, uh, achieved capacity uh, for unconditional uh, loving. And it's that unconditional loving that underwrites something else that we all need, all human beings, all human societies, always, everywhere, and that is the capacity for forgiveness. Because we're all going to hurt each other. This is, this is inevitable in human affairs. Our imperfections mean this will, will, will happen. And yet in healthy relationships, parents and children, husband and wife, uh, siblings, friends, people will do things that harm or offend uh, or each other or, or, or an injustice or something like that. And we need to be able to um, understand that we've done something wrong, uh, not deny it, uh, face up to it, uh, ask for forgiveness, and get forgiveness, which means somebody's got to be able to give forgiveness. And people have to be able to understand that they need it. They need to be able to give it as much as they sometimes need it from other people, uh, that it's a two-way street. We need others to forgive us and we need to be able to forgive others. Well, in situations in which people have not really fully experienced unconditional love and the security that comes uh, from it, uh, I think it's harder for people to forgive. And this, this leads to a, the building of walls uh, between people and causes people to instrumentalize their relationships or to view their relationships, even their most intimate familial relationships purely instrumentally. So people begin to ask, what am I getting out of this relationship? Yeah. If I'm not getting something for myself out of this relationship that I want, what good is it? I'll cast it off. I'll go into something else, not just a marriage, which would explain, you know, the, the rise of uh, divorce, even outside of situations of, uh, of abuse and so forth. Uh, it, I think also explains the way people will cast off friendships yeah uh, ordinary friendships today uh, why we don't have the kind of loyalty to institutions um, whether they're local community institutions uh, uh, religious institutions uh, civic associations of various descriptions the so-called institutions of civil society these voluntary associations that's why we don't have the loyalty to them that we uh, used to have there's been a uh, at least here in the West, uh, something very near a collapse in trust in such institutions. There's very fine uh, sociological work um, uh, on, on these matters done by, for example, Robert Putnam, the uh, distinguished social scientist at Harvard mm -hmm. University, uh, by Bradford Wilcox at the University of, uh, of Virginia, uh, by um, 
uh, the sociologist husband and wife pair, um, Amber and uh, uh, David Lapp, L-A-P-P, uh, who are out in Illinois. Uh, and it all points in the same direction, a, uh, a, a decline of mm -hmm. institutions of civil society, a decline of trust in those institutions, a decline of participation in those uh, institutions. So I think all of these phenomena are interconnected. Uh, another thing I uh, point to, Adrian, is um, I've noticed even in the community in in, in which I live, um, yeah, there there is a good deal of of family breakdown. Not not nearly as much as there are in more vulnerable communities. We we live in a mm -hmm. in an affluent uh, community, well educated community, academic community, um, but even here, there's a much higher uh, rate of ma marriage dissolution than there used to be, um, you know, maybe 50 years ago. Um, even for the children who don't directly experience that, whose own uh, families are intact and uh, don't experience any direct yeah. reason in their own home to fear that their parents may break up, these children are affected by the divorces in the families of the children that they grow up with, their friends, their ability to trust in marriage and marriage stability, to, to, to have the kind of trust they need to make good marriages. Their understanding of what marriage is, is affected, it's undermined by the uh, experience that so many of their friends have in having their parents break up. Now, in many cases, the, the children understand that even though mom and dad, mommy and daddy are, are separating permanently, that doesn't mean that mommy loves them any less or that daddy loves them any less. And both parents will truthfully reassure their children that we're both gonna love you just as much, but we're, 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 we're separating from each other and we're not gonna live together and you're gonna spend some time with daddy and some time with mommy. But in those situations, the impact on the children is nevertheless severe and it undermines their ability to suppose that they themselves can make lasting marriages. It will make them more cautious, more wary, less trusting, and the same even for friends who themselves are in intact families. And that's something I really worry about. Wow, that is quite a worrying trend. And I can see how that would happen. But if you allow me, I'd like to diverge a bit. I'd like to ask about something else that you mentioned. You mentioned the need for forgiveness, the need for being forgiven, forgiveness as a path, another way to become aware that we are unconditionally loved and to become aware of our identity and the identity of others. It seems that when people have no human experience of forgiveness, no experience of being forgiven by other people here on earth, it seems that religious experiences can play a great role in ennobling them and enabling them to commit themselves to other people once again. Do you think that the conjugal understanding of marriage necessarily has religious foundations or alternatively that some sort of religious experience 
is what we need in order to return to a conjugal understanding of marriage. There's nothing in the theory of marriage as a conjugal partnership that requires any particular theological view. Now, it's certainly true that ideas about marriage, like ideas about everything, are integrated into the great traditions of, of faith. Um, you find them in Judaism. Uh, the basic conjugal view of marriage is presented in the Jewish faith, which then, of course, gets adopted into Christianity in the very first book of the Bible, uh, the, right at the beginning of the second chapter of Genesis, very, very early, uh, where uh, scripture says, uh, the man shall leave his mother and home and cleave unto his wife, and the two will be one flesh. Uh, that's a direct rejection of the idea of marriage yeah. as sexual romantic companionship. Uh, that is an affirmation of the conjugal view. And it comes immediately after what you get in Genesis 1, which is the idea that, that man has a special, profound, inherent, and equal dignity in virtue of being made in the image and likeness of God. So these core ideas about human dignity, about justice, uh, about marriage, about many other things are integrated into these traditions of faith, certainly in the case of Judaism and Christianity, also, of course, uh, in Islam, uh, in the great Eastern traditions of faith in Buddhism, uh, Hinduism, uh, Confucianism, which from a Western sociological point of view seems to be both a kind of religion and a philosophical uh, system. Um, we'll see about secular uh, societies and, and, yeah. and what happens there. Now, one thing to consider is maybe there can never really be such a thing as a secular society. Um, even what advertises itself as secularism, much of contemporary progressive ideology is secularist, seems to function for all intents and purposes as a religion. It's just another religion or a pseudo uh, religion. It seems to have all the qualities of religion, even down to having an eschatology, a theory of the last things. Yeah. It's got ideas about salvation. It has saints. It has heroes. It has uh, holy days. It has doctrines and dogmas and uh, uh, certainly ethical codes and all the features of, um, of, of religion. So uh, it could be the secular progressivism of the sort that is now dominant in the elite sectors of Western cultures. And I gather from what you're saying is rising uh, in, in Kenya and other places in Africa. It may be that, that they, it really just represents uh, a new religion. And we'll see how this new religion fare, fares. It doesn't strike me as a very good religion, but let's see how it does. Thanks a lot for that. If you don't mind, I'd like to move on to my final question. I'd like to ask about the relationship between contraceptive use, even contraceptive use between people, between people in a monogamous union, the relationship between that and the revisionist understanding of marriage, if any exists. Well, uh, Pope Paul VI, uh, when he issued his uh, surprising, at the time, uh, encyclical uh, letter, Humanae Vitae, reaffirming the historic uh, Christian uh, teaching on contraception, warned that uh, the development of a mentality uh, associated with the practice would undermine the institution of marriage and the core principles of sexual morality that protect the institution of marriage. 
Now, many people at the time, including many Catholics, thought that this was an exaggeration, that uh, he was too worried about the consequences of this small change, as they perceived it, small change in the church's uh, teaching. But I think nobody can today deny that he was being prophetic, that he foresaw consequences that came perhaps even more quickly or rapidly than he had uh, he had ever uh, himself yeah. uh, imagined. So uh, you have to count that point in his favor and against those who at the time brushed it off and said, there's nothing here to worry about. It's not really an issue. It's not a big uh, uh, problem. He was here just going back to the uh, uh, earliest teaching of the Christian community, of course, rooted in the, in the Jewish mm -hmm. understanding as all Christian ethics is. Uh, you find it, for example, in the Didache, uh, the, uh, one of the very earliest uh, documents of, of, of Christianity. It's not a scriptural document, but it's, uh, it's considered uh, to be reflective of the understanding of the uh, very early uh, Christian church as it's bringing its uh, message mm -hmm. from its initial Jewish followers out into the larger Gentile uh, community. Yeah. So uh, um, there's, there's no doubt that there's a real issue there. I mean, the, 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 the facts are the facts as things have played out historically. Well, thanks so much, Professor George. Do you have any parting shot you'd like to offer to our listeners? Uh, you asked me for a for a parting shot, and uh, uh, you know, I would I would say that uh, I hope that Africa uh, will stand fast against the um, cultural imperialism that uh, I believe. Uh, is operating to try to uh, pressure uh, African uh, nations and peoples uh, to embrace secular progressive uh, ideology. You, you, you have great and strong uh, uh, traditions of morality. Uh, like all uh, human beings, uh, you're fallible <laughs> and, uh, and don't always live up to uh, uh, those, those principles. That's true of all human beings uh, everywhere but they're strong uh, and strong in your cultures. Uh, you, you have a deep appreciation of the family and the importance of the, of the family. Uh, the, the, the family not just including mother, father, uh, and children, but also grandparents. I know the role that grandparents play in many traditions in Africa. Great-grandparents when they uh, uh, survive to see their uh, great-grandchildren. You have a strong sense of the obligation of future uh, generations, uh, and you have a strong sense of the moral codes, uh, those pertaining to the family and more generally, that have to be in place if, if, if these valuable um, principles and institutions are to be preserved. But you're under a lot of pressure, carrots and sticks, financial incentives to compromise uh, your beliefs and your values. Uh, pressures, efforts to stigmatize you for standing by your uh, beliefs, you'll find that secular progressive ideology is not simply a kind of pseudo-religion. It's increasingly a fundamentalist and militant uh, religion. 
uh, it is not tolerant of alternative uh, religions. It's not a tolerant of alternative or competing uh, points of view. So Africa sign, uh, stands as a kind of sign of contradiction to that fundamentalist and imperialistic form uh, of faith that's now bearing down on you. So efforts are going to be very strong. And of course they have money and they have power uh, to force you to yield uh, your values and principles. And I hope you won't. Uh, there are many of us in, in, in the West. Uh, we, we don't have great power, but there are many of us in the West who stand with you and support you. We, we believe basically what you believe. You believe what, what, what we believe. Uh, we've seen the way um, pressures can be brought here on institutions, even churches, uh, to make them cave in and to make them fold and so forth. So we know what you're experiencing uh, even now, and I want you to know that we're standing in solidarity with you. And we also know that we have things to learn from your work and witness. Um, there was a time when Africa was thought as missionary territory. Uh, actually, now we're the missionary territory and we need you as the missionaries. Uh, we have many wonderful uh, priests in the Catholic, I, I myself am Catholic, in the Catholic yeah. church in this country, uh, the United States I'm speaking of. We have many priests from places like Nigeria, uh, uh, who are uh, here uh, with us serving in our parishes and they are among the, the greatest witnesses and the, and the greatest uh, priests that we, that we have. Uh, within the larger universal church, of course, some of the greatest mm -hmm. prelates uh, in the church are the, are the Africans, Cardinal Robert Saura, uh, uh, for example. Wow, thank you so much for the encouraging words. Uh, that's a challenge to all of us. <laughs> well, thank you, Adrian. It's a pleasure being on your podcast. That's it for this week's first episode of the IFS podcast. Thanks for listening. Be sure to catch up next week with the next episode in the podcast with Thomas Mundia on the role of the man in the family.